Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Um, so the last couple of months, we have been in a sub-series in 1 Corinthians that we've called We Are Members Uniquely Gifted. Uh, and that's focused on how each of us are called to use our spiritual gifts to benefit the church. And so we've learned a handful of things along the way, some very important things that I would, I'd like to revisit just real quick to jog our memory and prepare us for what we have today in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Some of the things that we've learned is, first and foremost, that all gifts bestowed are of equal importance. So if every believer is gifted, if God has equipped every person with the Holy Spirit in some unique way... Uh, He's also promised to us that none of those gifts are better than other gifts. And so I can know that the gifts that you have are are not any greater than the ones that I have. And the ones that I have are not any greater than the ones that you have. And that's necessary in order for our puzzle pieces to fit together the right way. Like we all have to be determined that, that even if I'm a little introverted and I'm good at this little thing over here and I'm not so good at the, that thing over there and, and so I'm not really built for that, I'm not outfitted for that, that does not make you lesser than in any regard. In fact, you're doing a thing and you're being a way that no one else can be. Very important to this conversation about gifts. Another thing that we've learned is that everything we do must be done in charity. So God has outfitted you with gifts. He has equipped you in a particular way. But if you don't employ that gifting with charity and love in mind, that that your primary uh, uh, understanding of your gifting is to bless other people, then you're way off base. You've got it all wrong. In fact, God isn't impressed with those gifts. What he desires is a loving heart and a loving heart towards the brethren. Another thing that we've learned is is that some gifts aren't in operation today. And we talked about why some gifts were built intentionally to be temporal. There were certain certain gifts that God equipped the first uh, century believers with that were intended to fade away when that which is perfect came. And we have that in the completed word of God. We discussed that at length, and you can revisit that. We've also learned that prophesying or preaching takes precedence in the church. And so while we all have these gifts and we all come together to serve one another and all of us are, 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 are benefit each other, benefiting each other in different ways, at the end of the day, the primary thing that we all should be doing is preaching, all of us. Whether we are gifted with preaching, the ability to preach, or not, it's our responsibility nonetheless to preach the truth of God's word. Everywhere we go, that's our job. And so, you know, we've spent, I mean, this is sermon number nine in this series. We've said a lot, so that recap probably didn't quite do it justice. But, but nonetheless, those are the really important things that we've looked at. Now today, we're going to be concluding this, this series on gifts by looking at chapter 14 and addressing the issue of tongues some more. And look, at, it was an issue. The, issue, the, the, the topic of tongues in the first uh, in 1 Corinthians and the, the Corinthian church, it was a pro- there was a problem. There was a problem to be addressed. Remember, the gifts of tongues are those spiritual gifts that um, God gave the first century church so that they might have the ability 
to speak in any language necessary, despite the fact that they may or may not have learned that language, right? So, so the way it would have worked is that, is that in Corinth, uh, the majority of the believers in the church would have spoken as their, their common tongue, Koinia Greek. That would have been what they were speaking day to day. But in any given moment, as, the necess- uh, the, uh, as it arose in necessity, they would have the gift to speak in any dialect of the people that were coming into the church or that they met on the street. This was a supernatural gift that they had. And a spectacular gift it was. But it had a very specific purpose. It had a very specific purpose in the church. Now, let's also remember that in the church of Corinth, that everyone was striving to speak in tongues. They all wanted that gift. Because it was so spectacular and because it was so unique, everybody seemed to want it, right? Everybody seemed to want that gift. Not only was it odd that they all wanted that gift because they didn't all have it, right? You either have it or you don't. But... Uh, those who had the gift were beginning to abuse it in the church. They were beginning to abuse their gifting, which is a thing. Apparently, that's a thing. The members had begun to, to let those who spoke in tongues dominate the services, which meant many people in those services couldn't understand the languages that were being spoken. And ultimately, it prevented them from participating in the learning and in the worship and in the prayer. So you can imagine uh, what it's like for the uh, native Spanish speakers, right? Like the, the folks that are in our church that don't speak English. When they come to a service, if we weren't translating for them, how hard it would be for them to participate if all the preaching and all the worship and everything is done in English and they can't understand anything that's being said. You can imagine in a similar way the feeling that one might have if someone speaking in tongues dominated the service and the rest of the church, the, the, the church at large, just couldn't understand what was going on. So it prevented the learning, it pre- prevented the worship, and it prevented the prayer. Now, as the P- Apostle Paul expressed in, in last week's sermon, in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, he says, Yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than by my voice I, uh, that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So what he's saying is that five words spoken in a language that's understood have greater profit than 10,000s of words spoken in a tongue that can't be understood. Is everyone with me? We're moving quick so far. We've got a lot to cover today. Um, now, the significant point that we, we walked away with is, uh, last week is the work of preaching is critically important because it has the broadest and deepest impact on the church. And when we are together in church preaching in a way that's biblical and clear, then um, it's it's the priority because it benefits everyone in attendance. This week, we're going to discuss the relationship between order or structure. Structure. God God loves things done in an orderly way. We're going to discuss the order of the worship service and the objective of edifying and encouraging the saints and, you know, many of us have and we will, will continue to struggle through uh, the topic of, of the gifts, all right? And uh, you're young, so you should, you know? You're, you don't know really, maybe a lot of you, uh, how God's made you to be. You don't understand or know yet how God has gifted you. And, and then others of you have grown up in religious situations and, and, and church settings that taught this maybe in a way that you're beginning to understand, is not as biblical. Maybe it was, more, it was more of a cultural thing that you were being taught as it concerned the gifts. 
And so this is new for you. And so what I want to point out is that uh, we're all going to need to continue to wrestle through this. Whether it's a doctrinal thing or a personal thing, we need to continue to look to God. And we need to ask ourselves this question. Okay, here's our question for today, and it's the question that's going to conclude this series. Do I trust God's plan as the perfect plan? Do I trust that God's plan is the perfect plan? And I think that's an important question because some of us want to call ourselves Christian, but yet a lot of time when we, when we discover what God's plan is from his word, we want to reject it because it doesn't fit what we understand or believe or what we, we bring in terms of presumption to our faith. A lot of us carry presumption as it concerns our Christianity. And so when we're confronted with the word of God, we have to ask ourselves, do I trust that God's plan for my life and for his church is the perfect plan and worthy of following. Let's ask uh, again, let's go to the Lord again real quick and, and just ask that the Lord be with us in our study today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open your book, um, we pray that you would help us to have understanding that what we, we learn and as we read in the plainness of the text, that we would be able to uh, receive it, uh, uh, conceptualize it for our own lives, and that we would, in turn, we begin walking in such a way that reflects what we believe about what you've said. Uh, we want to follow you. We don't know how. It's going to require grace. It's going to require you helping us. And so we're relying on you and your spirit to teach us and to grow us in ways that, that even if we will it, even if we're motivated to do so, we just can't. We can't do it. We can't do it in our flesh. And we can't do it by simply willing it. We need your help. We need your spirit. And so teach us and make us new. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we start today, uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage for time's sake, but I do want to point out two statements that summarize the focus of today's sermon. Two areas of emphasis that we're going to find in this passage today. And the first one is this. Verse 28 says the following. Let all things be done unto edifying. Let all things be done unto edifying. And we know that that word edify means to encourage in faith. That all the things that we do ought to encourage and promote faith in other people. Everything we do. So that's a great way of summarizing everything that we've talked about in terms of gifts and, and how we're fitly joined to the body and, uh, and, and so Paul's going to hit on that today. And then verse 40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. All things need to be done within a structure. God has a plan and he has rules by which he needs his church to abide by when they gather together. And we're going to look at those things because ultimately what we're going to learn without giving too much away is that when things are done in decency and order, it promotes the edifying of the believers. That the two things are absolutely related to one another. Now we're going to begin by talking about this idea that understanding is key. Understanding is key. Verse 20 says, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. So, so here we have Paul is asking the church in Corinth, He's asking of them, can you approach this issue, this issue of spiritual gifts, this issue of tongues in particular, can you approach this issue with maturity? Can you understand? Are you understanding what I write to you, right? 
As I, as I write this letter and I send it to you, as you read it in the congregation, do you understand what I'm asking of you? Do you get it? And can you respond in maturity? I, I don't know if you have ever observed little kids. Some of you are at the age where uh, you avoid little kids at, at all costs. When I was in my early 20s, I was doing everything I could to not be around little children. Um, but now I'm around them all the time. and I, I've learned to love it. But I don't know if you've ever observed or watched little kids on the playground fighting. Or you can maybe imagine yourself as a kid. Now, they're angry at each other, and they they say really ridiculous things, like, um, you're a poo-poo face, or, you know, they're fighting, and they say things, and, uh, but then they're only angry for like two seconds, and then they're right back uh, to playing. Now, when adults fight, it's different, isn't it? It's different. When adults fight, they hold grudges for months and even years. It's different. So Paul's saying that we should be like children as it concerns our malice, by looking past other people's wrongs. Sam talked about this extensively in the last service, and so I'm not going to hit on this too hard, but as, as, as what Paul's calling us to is a type of faith where when we engage with one another and we hurt each other, that we treat each other the way children do. That we love each other beyond the circumstances. That we look past it. That we get back to work. We get back to the work of of playing nice. But in contrast, as it concerns understanding, we should be as men. We should be grown folk. Kids are gullible. And they believe anything that you tell them. They're often illogical. And they think with their feelings their comprehension is limited by their, by their maturation. It's limited. But an adult, an adult can be critical in their thinking. A Christian adult has the faculties to weigh the evidence, don't we? That's a gift of being an adult, is that you can, you can take what you're hearing and weigh the evidence. In fact, what the Bible tells us is that we can compare Scripture with Scripture. That's an adult activity. And praise God for it. 1 Corinthians 2.13 teaches us that. And we learn that at length. The adult has the ability to draw conclusions that are mature and full of understanding. That's the benefit of being an adult. And so as it concerns the sign gifts and speaking in tongues, Paul is asking us to put on our thinking caps and determine truth from fiction. See, the Bible is truth and it presents a truth to us. But when the world gets their hands on something and men's opinions get mingled in, pretty quickly things become fictitious. And as we addressed last week, there, is, there are customs in the church today that just do not align themselves with the word of God. They are fictitious in nature. Grown men and women have invented things that the Bible never said. And then they practice those things daily in the church. And what Paul's saying, look, think critically. He's asking the church in Corinth, consider if the way you are doing things is beneficial to the well-being of the church or not. And with that in mind, verse 21 says, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will, they, uh, at will, they not hear me, saith the Lord. And so this is a prophetic reference to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, which says, 
For with, some, uh, or with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to, his, uh, to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So in this passage, the passage um, that, that Paul wrote, God speaks, God judges, but men aren't hearing or understanding. That's why Paul makes reference to Isaiah 28, is that, that God often speaks and God often judges, but men don't always hear it right. They don't always understand, and understanding is critical. In other words, God is telling that early Corinthian church, it's, it's my will to use this gift of speaking in tongues to meet a specific need of providing the gospel to those who speak a foreign language. But here's the deal. Even God recognizes it's difficult to understand. The church doesn't have ears to receive it under edification. It's not beneficial to the congregation. And so, okay, so, so verse 22 says, and Paul reiterates the purpose of tongues here. That's what he's about to do. He's going to reiterate the, the purpose in, in tongues. See, now that I can see the slides in the back, I know when you guys are messing up. <laughs> so could, if you don't mind, go back to the last slide because I'm going to cover this right here, okay? So just be patient with me. See, this now, you're, you guys are in big trouble now. <laughs> I have no idea what was back here. I had no idea. I was just assuming you guys were, okay, so here we go. So Paul's reiterating the, reiterating the purposes of tongues, distinguished it, uh, distinguishing it from the work of preaching and teaching. Verse 22, don't, don't jump there. We'll go there in a second. It says, wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. And so what, we need to know what tongues are. What are tongues? Okay, let's address this one more time. Tongues were a sign to those who don't believe. It was for people who don't believe, non-believers. And it was for confirming the validity of the gospel message. It was a miraculous work that confirmed the validity of the gospel message itself. Now, not only that, but it was a sign to those who don't believe that made the gospel plain, made it understandable. Okay, which is why, this is the exact reason why we have translators in our worship service. You know that booth, I don't know if you guys know this, there's a booth at the back of the sanctuary. And those bilingual individuals, maybe it's, maybe it's Carlos or, or, or maybe it's Andy or whoever it might be, they go back there into that booth and they, they translate the English into Spanish so that the Spanish speakers in our congregation, they've got little headphones on, okay? And, and they can hear the, the, the message in their language. Why? Because they need to understand. <laughs> it's critical that they understand, because if they don't understand, then they get left behind. And no believer should be left behind. And when we translate the sermon, what we say is that they are of equal importance to any other person in our church. We need them to understand because we need them to be on mission with us. We can't afford to let them fall behind. And so tongues was intended to help people who didn't understand, understand. And it was a sign that was intended to give confirmation to the validity of the gospel. But listen, listen, believer. It was not for the Christian. It was not for the believer. It was not for the edification of the saints. And therefore was not an effective gift in the context of the church's worship services. 
That's important for us to understand. We need to understand that because many of us have seen, we've seen worship service overtook by what were called gifts. And people got left behind. Now further, Paul adds, he says, but prophesying, remember preaching, preaching, prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. And so as we learned last week, prophesying or the declaration of God's word is of great significance to those who believe. And anything that hinders our understanding, it has to be dealt with. See, the goal of understanding, if we as a church understand that our goal is understanding, establishing understanding in our worship services, then it helps us to set the agenda for what we do. It helps us set the agenda for what we do week in and week out in our worship services. Things aren't done all willy-nilly. Right? We're not doing whatever we want to do. People don't just get the mic. It's not like we're just handing the mic around, let anybody say what they want to say. People aren't falling out, doing whatever they want to do. We're not doing that. Because God has an order. And he, he, he prioritizes understanding in the service. And so we, with that in mind, need to prioritize understanding in our services. So here's our key point. Key point. People's ability to worship corresponds directly with their ability to understand. If we want to enable people and set people free to truly worship in spirit and in truth, as the Bible suggests we should, then it is important that people understand. This is a, this is a big deal to God in the Bible. And this, here's, here's just a smattering of verses where God addresses the issue of understanding. Psalm 119, 34 says, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. In other words, I will be able to obey your law if I understand. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. 119, 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. In other words, the words of truth provide me with understanding. 119, 144 says, The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. My livelihood is wrapped up in my ability to understand you, God. Psalm 119, 169 says, Let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He's bent towards providing us with knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 14, 33 Wisdom resteth in the heart of him that hath understanding. That's where wisdom comes from. It begins with understanding. But that which is in the midst of fools is made known. Proverbs 16, 2. Understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that hath it. But the instruction of fools is folly. Proverbs 21, 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. So with this need for understanding in mind, Paul teaches us a pattern for our gathering that prioritizes biblical worship and spiritual growth. And so here's the deal. This is what we're going to look at next. In order to edify, people have to understand. They must understand. If the, if the priority is going to be edification, then people must understand what we're saying and doing from God's word 
Verse 23, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? In other words, if visitors come to learn and to seek the truth, and what happens is they walk in and find everyone speaking in foreign languages, unwilling to actually communicate with them, they're going to think you're crazy. Now, this kind of distraction is sadly happening even in today's churches all over the world. But you know what makes it worse? What makes it worse, what compounds the madness, is that they aren't even actually speaking in tongues. They are working themselves into a chaotic frenzy and uttering sounds unfamiliar to Scripture, completely unfamiliar. In the word of God. Because what we know is that speaking in tongues is the speaking of foreign languages. And what, and what, as we learned last week, what people do today, what they call speaking in tongues, is a guise for doing whatever they want to do. It's, it's a mask that gives the believer the ability to control the service as they see fit. It makes their gifts the priority. And it puts the spotlight on them. And it's a distraction from the truth that should be at the forefront of everything that we do. And I say that with the deepest love for my brethren. It's an error. But if things are done disorderly, if things are allowed to be done in disorder, then how will we actually find ourselves reaching and edifying people? If they can't understand, then how can they receive? How will they know what to receive? Verse 26 says this, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm or a song, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. So Paul's rebuking them here. He says, how is it that when you gather, every one of you wants to get up front and talk? Everyone has something to say. One person wants to sing. They got a special. Hey, I have a special. How often do you hear people? I bet you used to hear it all the time. But we've gotten some order in the services. And so there's, a, there's an order. But back in the day, I bet you always heard people say, Hey, I got a special, Eric. Why don't, you, why don't you give me the mic? Got a special. You guys know that language? Is that old language? Is that old people language? Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Special. I got a special. He's, he says, you know, everyone has something to say. One person wants to sing. Another wants to teach. Another wants to speak in tongues. And others want to just jump, jump up and interpret. And, and your services have gotten out of hand. Your services have become chaos. Key point. Order promotes edification. Order promotes edification. You know, God gives us so much flexibility in our worship services. The word of God isn't super stringent on this issue. In fact, a lot of the things that we do are customary to the Western world 
over, over the evolution of church through a 2,000-year period, right? But there are certain things that are tried and true. I mean, they had a pulpit ministry in the Old Testament, right? But there are things that are just customary. The God gives us a lot of flexibility to conduct church in a way that matches the culture in which we live. So we meet in this building, but if we let, uh, met under a hot tree in the middle of August, it would be more, very difficult for people in our American culture to just go and participate in that form of worship. But in India or in Africa, even right now, people are doing that as common. It's regular for them. It's what they do. And, and so God gives us lots of flexibility in the way that we conduct our services. Thank you for that, Lord. He allows us room to adapt, accommodate, to meet the disposition of our community. We're allowed space for tradition as well as creativity. It's great. But despite all of this wonderful flexibility, God is asking us to do things with order and with a desire to edify people from God's word. That's the objective. So we can't facilitate a worship environment that distracts from worship or emphasizes people get people's gifts over God's word. We can't do that. We can't afford to do that. We have to create environments where learning and worship are a shared activity. Order, order promotes edification. But listen to me, order isn't edification. Okay, I want to make that distinction real quick. So order does promote edification in the church, but order itself isn't edification. A church service can't be uh, a church service is allowed to be prim and proper. It could be shiny. It could be comfortable. Are, these, are the seats comfortable? I hope so. They're new. We just spent a lot of money on them this year. Uh, you know, they can be comfortable. You're not sitting on the ground. It's, you know, there's some order. Now, church services, they can, they can unfold seamlessly. You know, we have a service coordinator. Pastor uh, Mitch helps us with coordinating services so that they move seamlessly. They're allocated three minutes for that, two minutes for that, ten minutes for this. You know, you didn't know it, but in the last service, Brian had a deadline doing that, that baby dedication. He had a time allotted to him. He had to get that thing done because we had some more songs to sing and we had some preaching to do. So it can unfold seamlessly and, or it could be organic. But here's the deal. It can have, services can have all those things and yet be completely void of the power of God. The order that God asks us to establish emphasizes prophesying because he has spiritual outcomes that he wants to achieve. He has something that he wants to get done every time we come together. And that is that you would learn, that you would grow, that you would become more intimate with him because you know him better. That's his objective in every single service. So with this in mind, he provides us with rules for creating order that promotes edifying. So let's talk about establishing this order. Order was very important in lecture settings and in public assemblies in antiquity during this time. But Paul is not so strict here. Uh, he, he gives lots of room, you know, uh, but, but he establishes a pattern for us of approaching different areas of disorder, areas where they tended to be disorderly in the services. And so the first thing is this, he tries to create some order here. God is creating order as it concerns the gift of tongues in that first century church. Verse 27, if any man speak in an unknown language, an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course 
and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So he begins by saying that if folks, if folks want to speak in a foreign language in the church services, if they're going to use tongues as a supernatural gift, they should be limited to two or three instances in the course of any given service. So what he says is no more than two or three people, max. That's it. That's all they get. Move it along, right? And then, and then he says that it has to happen with the interpreter so that the, the words that are being spoken can be translated to the congregation, which again would have been koinia. So again, the benefit of tongues would be that it was strictly a sign gift to non-native Greek speakers. So you have sh- someone showing up to service. They speak a different dialect. The gift of tongues was intended to bless them. Then there would be an interpreter, and the interpreter would make sure that everything was made plain to the rest of the congregation. But Paul further stipulates that if there was no interpreter present, then the person with the gift of tongues would not be invited to speak publicly, but should instead commune with God in his heart. Now notice that it doesn't say speak with tongues and prayer in his heart, that he would go to his prayer closet and speak in tongues, because what? That doesn't, that doesn't edify, Right? What he does say is that they should commune with God in his heart. They should withhold their gift because it wasn't the right setting. It needed to be done in order. And so instead, they commune with God in the context of what was going on. I mean, that's what it says, right? That's what we read here. Okay, next, order in the preaching. There's got to be order in preaching. Preachers can't just do whatever they want to do. Too bad, huh? Do whatever they want to do. Verse 29 says, let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So Paul is saying that when the teachers stand up to teach, that they do it one by one. And they limit the service to two or three speakers. Let's limit. Just keep it two or three. It gets out of hand, does it not? When it gets into four or five or six speakers, it can get out of hand. So just limit your services to two or three speakers. And then they were instructed to have a judge present. Now, what's that about? Who was this judge? This would have been an elder of the church available to judge what was and wasn't biblical. Again, Corinth is a church without a completed Bible. Remember that? Okay, they have the Old Testament, they have a handful of letters, they have, the, they have the Apostles' Creed, right? They have the Apostles' Doctrine, the legit creed, okay, the original one. Okay, they have the Apostles' Doctrine, and that's what they have to go by. And so, again, and Corinth is a, is a very multicultural church, and they, it would have required someone with a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and familiarity with the Apostles' Doctrines, in order for there to be accountability. So, so the equivalent of that in our ministry is, is like this. We often have young men, growing leaders, step into the pulpit to preach for me, which is a huge blessing to me. But it's also a blessing to you because what that means is that young men are growing in our church into, into a, a teaching and preaching ministry, which are important gifts for the pastorate. 
And so it's, it's amazing for us to have those guys step into the pulpit. But, but, but what's really important is that guys like me and Eric and Andrew and Brent, a handful of guys that have been around for a minute, are here to listen to the preaching. So that if some, someone says something that's a little, little bit not doctrinal, that we can go find them later and correct that because they need to get better. Right? Get better at studying God's word. Get more, more and more precise as it concerns uh, dividing and studying the word of God. Now, that would have been even more critical in the first century when there wasn't a completed word, right? And so why all, the, why all these rules? Why all these rules? Verse 33 says this, For God is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Okay, here's a key point. If it's confusing or chaotic, it's not of God. That's just a really good biblical principle to live by. If it's, if it's confusing or chaotic, it's not of God. And there's lots of things being done in the church today, the church universal, that are confusing and chaotic. Now, here as a ministry, we can even say to ourselves that when we engage with people, and it appears that, that they're establishing or creating chaos in the context of our worship, or they're creating context in our, uh, in our uh, chaos in our Bible studies, right? Things are getting confusing. Uh, uh, there's, there's disunity or, or, or seeds of division are being sown. Then we can know, we can know that that's really not of God and it needs to be addressed, right? We can know that because it's chaotic. It, it, smells, like, it smells like the devil, that's what the devil does, is he, he, he creates chaos and confusion wherever he goes so that people will be misled. And so if it smells like confusion, well, God's not in that. And so we either need to refuse it or we need to correct it. We need to rebuke it or correct it, which is what Paul's trying to do in the church in Corinth. So if it's confusing or chaotic, it's not of God. Now, before we get into the next section, here's the deal. I want to once again remind you that I love you, and that the Bible is God's word, okay? The Bible's God's word. Now, I want to admit, I'm stupid. I'm just a man, okay? But I'm a man that has spent hours in this passage, and I've studied it to present it to you with as much purity and devotion to the text as possible, now, what that means is that when your personal mindset or cultural bias comes in conflict with the Bible, it's in your best interest to learn how to submit to its commandments. It's in your best interest. Now, let's be honest. We live in a world, we live in a world that's in an identity crisis. A world where, where listen, I'm going to use a word, where feminism has actually, whatever good it may have held at certain time periods, okay, where the arguments could be made on both sides of this topic. But here's the deal. Feminism has lost all sense of purpose. We live in a world where gender has lost all sense of meaning. It doesn't even mean anything. Uh-oh. But here's the deal. The Bible's not confused. The Bible's not confused on these issues, so we have to learn 
to trust it above the ever-devolving philosophies and ideologies of our present age. The Bible exists above the fog of our social contagion. It's higher than your perspectives or ideas or what you've been taught. So with that said, I want to provide a context for what I'm about to read. Now, in the services in Corinth, in the servants, in the services, they would have likely been seated the way that Kaya used to sit. <laughs> well, actually, wait a second. This is there's one dude in this section right here. All chicks right here. <laughs> there's a and there's like a glut of dudes right here. There's a couple of you married girls, some dudes here. So maybe this is more common than we realize. <laughs> But in, in, in the synagogue, in Jewish worship, it was very common as part of the tradition that men would have sat on one side and women would have sat on the other, okay? And that probably was true within the custom of the early church in Corinth as well. That's how they would have sat, on opposite sides of the room. Now, they would have also had a uh, Corinthian pagan temple worship cultural influence in their lives. Now, during this time, I don't know if you remember, but there were temples everywhere in Corinth, and there was all kinds of crazy worship going on. And, and there would have been, commonly in temples, there would have been priestesses. There would have been female leaders of those temples that would have led people in pagan worship. And so they would have had that rolling around in the back of their mind, too. And they would have, it would have been normal for them to see women ruling over men. And so there was some confusion in terms of headship and order and the way services should be conducted. The church in Corinth was a church of disorder and had a problem that needed to be resolved in order for understanding to have its way. So as we learn in chapter 11, the Bible teaches us, we looked at this already, that there's a divine order for the family that was intended to reflect, be reflected in the worship service. So there's a divine order in my family. I'm the head, okay? Now I regard Eva as equal. But in terms of the equity of our relationship, I'm the leader of the home. And she, she meets needs that I can't meet in the family. But that structure is intended to be reinforced and reaffirmed in the context of our worship. Because when the worship services breaks from that order, well, what it does is, it, is it's bad for the home. It's bad for the home. And so God wants this way of ordering things to be reflected in all of his creation. Genesis 3.16 says this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in order that thou shalt bring forth children. Okay, amen, Jacqueline? Right? For those of you who just had babies, it ain't an easy thing to have a baby. No, it's tough. It's hard work. Okay? But listen, he goes on and it says, And thy desire shall be... To thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Genesis chapter 3, y'all, from the very beginning. Not only that, we know that scripture says, as it concerns the nature of the pastorate, in 1 Timothy 3 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. There's a lot of things that a bishop should be, but the very first thing that we know he should be is blameless. And then the husband, the husband of one wife, meaning it's a dude, it's a dude. Pastors are dudes. And that's reaffirmed in the entire narrative of the New Testament. 
in the entire narrative of the New Testament. But in Corinth, there was an issue with disruptions in the service. And from, from the context, um, what happened was that, that the women in the church were commonly speaking out and interrupting the preaching. Like if you could imagine, if while I'm preaching every week, Eva was just like, hey. <laughs> What's this dude talking about? <laughs> Which is what she says at home. Right? So you've got this setting where you say women on one side, men on the other side, and they're yelling across the room asking their husband, well, what's he mean? What's he saying? And then you've got the confusion of all these people speaking in, in tongues and foreign languages and different people getting up to prophesy, and there's confusion everywhere. And on top of it, the women are all like, what is going on? <laughs> right? And they're speaking up. And, and so, look, Paul says something here that is going to be hard for our 21st century ears to hear, but you've got to hear it the right way, and we have to understand that God's way is best. Verse 34 says this, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Look, what this is not saying is that women are inferior. That's what our 21st century ears want to hear. That's not what this is saying. Paul has already explained in this letter, in chapter 11, that women are invited to pray and even instruct in the church. They're invited to do so. But the primary issue here is with the pulpit ministry. And the pulpit ministry is for men. And the preaching services are not to be interrupted by men or women. Does that make sense? So in the broadest sense, this is, it's not a shame for women to speak, right? It's a shame for her to speak in the congregation as an authority. I can't just invite, you know, uh, you know the first lady to come up here and just preach to y'all. I'll just step down and let her instruct you and, and rebuke you and admonish and, you know, like the way I do, you know? <laughs> And it's interesting to me that, that churches today that get the tongues thing wrong also get this wrong. It's just an interesting observation that, that the problems with the Corinthian church exist today. And for those who neglect chapter 14 in terms of tongues also neglect chapter 14 in terms of the pulpit ministry. Again, Paul isn't saying that all of this stuff to prop up the patriarchy. Okay, that's not why he says this. He's acknowledging that there is divine order in creation and divine order in the church. That divine order is meant to picture for us the relationship with Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That's what we're supposed to personify when we meet, when we gather together. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ... So let the wives be their own, uh, to their own husbands in everything. Look, I understand that this can be difficult to hear in a world that has so greatly diverged from biblical teaching. But that's what the plain understanding of the text says. And we can't do what so many people do in our world today, and that's relegate the things that they don't like to backwardism. 
oh, well, they were just backwards in the first century. They just weren't culturally as refined as we are. They just didn't have things figured out. And so we've evolved, and now the church obviously should have women preachers and pastors. Look, if the ancient story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection should be taken literally for what it is, and I put my faith in that, then everything else the Bible says by necessity ought to also be true. I don't get to pick and choose what is and isn't relevant. It is either all relevant or it's not. And so what is said here in 1 Corinthians 14, it is doctrine, and we will hold to it in the church. Now, with that said, in my ministry and in the ministry of all of our church, we give over lots of authority to women because we recognize how important their leadership is in the church. We, we understand that Titus chapter 2 says that the elder women in the church ought to instruct the younger women. And so that's why we have women, we've got more female Bible study leaders than we have men. There's more women that are stepping up in leadership and evangelizing even than the men in our ministry. It's a pretty amazing thing to see. And so the issue is the nature of our congregation, our services. Now, I want to close with this. We see an interesting transition taking place here at the end of this chapter. Things are going from the spoken word to the written word. Things are going from an emphasis on the spoken word to the written word. Now, Paul concludes by telling us that the written word is superior to the gifts of revelation. Uh-oh. What's he say? He says, what? What? He's getting real sarcastic here. What? Right? In my best Alex voice. Right? What? 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 <laughs> what? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? In other words, Paul says, did you write the Bible? Because I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> no, what he's saying is, Paul says, did you, did you write the Bible? Are your opinions greater than the divine words of Scripture? So what's happening here is Paul is acknowledging that what he's writing for them is scriptural the same way the Old Testament Scriptures are scriptural. He's affirming in this moment that these are actually the words of God. Paul knew that his letters were divinely inspired in the time that he was writing them. He knew that he had the full authority of God when he wrote these commands and wrote the, this, this, this letter. So he's being sharp with them. He's challenging them because he knows that what he's saying about the order of services and about the spiritual gifts, these are hard words for them. This is difficult for them to hear. And so what he does is he pauses here and he says, listen, it's not about what you think and it's not about what I think. Did you write the Bible? These are the commands of God and they ought to be taken as the commands of God. He's being very sharp with his words. This is a strong period at the end of a very difficult sentence. It's a powerful statement when he says in verse 37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Key point, and the biggest one that we could possibly hit in the entirety of this series is this. The Bible is the final authority. The Bible is the final authority. This statement by Paul reveals to us the shift of authority moving away from the experiential or prophetic revelation 
to the finality of the written revelation of the Bible. This reminds us that the written word of God is the final authority for us even today. And our Christianity is not informed by our feelings or experiences or opinion or culture. Our Christianity is informed by the specific words of the Bible. Verse 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. If you want to be ignorant, be ignorant, which many people are today. Are they not on these very subject matters? Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, covet to preach, and forbid not to speak with tongues. There's a place for it. Let all things be done decently and in order. So this is God's plan for gifts. This is it. Charity, edification, order. Can we trust that that his word is true and perfect for the church and for my life? Look, he has made you, he has knit you in your mother's womb. He made you just the way he wanted you. And then when you accepted Christ, he awakened something in you that you never knew that you had, you would never have been capable of. And he wants to use you mightily to see this world saved. He has a purpose. He has a mission for you. And you have to decide that you're going to get in with his plan rather than following after your own plan. Amen? Now, as we close, I have a really important announcement to make, okay? So this is going to be, we're shifting gears here, and then we'll worship and close. But I have, I have an announcement to make, and it's this, that starting in June, Uriah Ginther will be starting a new fellowship. <clears throat> focused on replicating the DNA of this ministry into an adult fellowship. Um, so, you know, uh, this, this, this group of people is, is going to initially, it'll be initially married, be mar- older married couples. And so one of the things you probably noticed, there's some old folks in here. You know, they start popping out babies and, and uh, the, the ministry is starting to look a little bit older. And, and we, listen, listen, we've got to be a ministry devoted to college and young adults, so people in their 20s primarily. We've got to really be focused on that work. And, and so we, from time to time, we need an opportunity to move people into a different segment, right? People that are called to minister to older adults, we need to move them out. Now, here's the deal. Here's the heart of this ministry. The heart of this ministry is that we would produce church planters, Okay, so I believe with all my heart, for the most part, when a man comes to me, he's been trained and he's growing. There's, a, there's probably 25 men in here who believe they have a call on their life, by the way, that have, that have told me in no uncertain terms that they believe that they are called to either be a missionary or a pastor or a church planter. I've heard that from at least 25 of the men in this room, okay, which is an awesome thing. And I believe that for the most part, when these men one day get a bug, right, that God is calling them to this city or that, say it's Vietnam, that what they'll do is they'll do exactly what Andrew's doing, and they'll take a small contingent of people, and they'll start meeting in preparation to just go. Now, Uriah believes that he has a call on his life for the pastorate, but he does not yet know where to go, okay? 
And so a beautiful thing that we can afford him is the opportunity to start a fellowship with a small group of people and then find out whether or not he can make that thing grow, right? Whether or not he's got the pastoring chops necessary for church planting. And he knows that. He knows that that's the objective, is to trust the Lord for something like this so that, so that ultimately everyone, when it, the day comes where we get rid of him, that everyone will be like, yeah, that, that guy is ready. That guy's ready. And the team that's going with him is ready, right? So what's going to happen is he's going to begin asking a handful of people to join him in this work. And it'll be primarily be older married couples. And so we'll, we'll probably lose in this ministry something like 24 or 25 people to go help him in that work. They're going to be meeting in the uh, 9 a.m., the A service, upstairs in, in the uh, dance studio is where they're going to be meeting. So if you've got questions about that, you can talk to me. So just come find me. Come talk to me. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that remain in this ministry that are even older because their, their heartbeat is to reach college and young adults, right? So like this dude right here, he's not going anywhere. This guy right here, he can't because if he does, we're in big trouble, <laughs> right? There's a handful of leaders in the ministry that are a little bit older, but they're going to remain here because look, I'm old and I'm here. And, and younger people need to look to older people and, and be able to say, oh, that's what marriage looks like. They need to be able to see that, or that's what leadership looks like. So there'll remain some leaders here with us in ministry because they got to show us the way. They got to show us the way. Because we can't, like, look, I can't die without having seen y'all plant like 30 or 40 churches. We have to multiply this work. We got to do that. Now, one of the things that I've always uh, uh, have had to ask myself over and over and over again in ministry is, do I love the people of God more than the mission of God? Because sometimes I think I do. So the answer to that question is, do I love the people of God more than the mission of God? That answer to that is complicated because the mission of God involves people. The two things are entwined together. And so my deep and abiding love for Uriah and Havilah, I mean, I've been with them in this ministry for six years. I've, I've known both of them since they were 16, 17 years old. I love them deeply. And a lot of the people that are going to go with him, I, I love them so much. <clears throat> so I told, I told Uriah, I was like, I can't let this get emotional because that's not good. Like, they're just going to go do this, and we got to be okay with that. But here's the deal. Um, I, have to, I have to ask myself this question because I got to be careful because I worship Christ, not his people. I worship Christ, not his people. And when I realize this, then I realize the mission is not interper uh, interpersonal retention. It's not the keeping of each other. I mean, if we, if we could... We would just keep each other. We would just do, we would just do this. Andrew would never leave. We'd just do this, and it would be awesome, and we'd just, it'd be a hug fest. <laughs> right? We'd just be with each other all the time. It would be amazing, and the ministry would continue to grow. We'd just keep adding people, and the, the hug would get bigger. <laughs> Save it for heaven. We've got a mission to do. And we've got to be on mission. And so we've got, to, we've got to let people go do their thing. And we've got to give a group 
of growing leaders some space in this other ministry to exercise their gifts and figure out what they're made of. Love, love for God insists not on proximity of God's people, but the propagation of God's people. We want to expand his kingdom. And the good thing is, and we see this in nature, is that pruning is healthy for any plant. And, and when we, we lose good, like we bear the fruit of good, then it has the ability to re- replicate elsewhere. Those seeds and those things have benefit elsewhere. But the pruning actually does the plant some good because it creates greater capacity for growth. And so when we see uh, this ministry peel off a, you know, a, a couple dozen people, that is not to our hurt, it's to our strength because we'll have more seats for souls in this room. Don't quit preaching the gospel, okay? If you've got questions about this new, new fellowship, um, then come talk to me. But with that said, I want to invite the worship team up and let's close glorifying God for all that he's done There will be leaders up here. Let's not forget the sermon today. There was a sermon. You already forgot it. (laughs) If you you have any questions about the sermon, about about gifts, about the order of our services, or if you just realize that Jesus Christ is pretty awesome and you want to know him, come talk to somebody. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we're grateful for what you've given us. It's hard. You know it's hard. There's trials, there's difficulties, there's always change, there's always transition in our ministry and in our lives. But you are true and you are faithful and you remain the same. You remain the same. Lord, I pray that today's service has produced understanding for people, that they're walking away uh, more educated from your word than they were before. Lord, use what they've learned to provoke in them righteousness and faithful living. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.